My name is Suzanne Legrand, and this is Disobedient Femmes. Today, my guest is psychologist, activist, and speaker Doreen Dodgen McGee, who has recently published Deviced, Balancing Life and Technology in Today's Digital World. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So the use of phones and other digital devices in our world is now ubiquitous. We can't get away from it. Can you talk a little bit about some of the ways that our digital landscape is shaping us? Our technology allows us to be connected to more people and more kinds of people than we've ever been able to be connected to, which I think is really profound. As an activist, I would say it helps us to organize and to mobilize, and that is also very um, important and a beautiful gift that it has given us. On the negative side of things, and I, I probably will lean a little bit that way today just because it's very easy to find access to the bright, shiny, wonderful things about tech and not as easy to find some of the ways it's profoundly impacting us negatively. But I find four areas of impact in the research, um, both in the clinical and peer-reviewed research and in my own anecdotal research, having now done this for 15 years. And that is that or those four areas are, first of all, we just are living differently in our skin. And there's kind of this sense of disembodiment that we, we have a bulk of our experiences in digital landscapes rather than in our actual physical ones. And that there's a profound impact that we, that we, or price we pay kind of as a result of that we have, you know, body dysmorphia. We're constantly comparing our bodies to the bodies of very altered, you know, images that we see online. We also see that um, we just aren't as used to the mess and risk of embodied experiences in the same way that we used to be. We also see a profound impact in terms of the development of the brain or the wiring of the brain. The brain wires together where it fires together. And that means that it, that we need to stimulate the brain with lots of different kinds of experiences in order to create the kind of complex neural pathways that make for healthy functioning. And when we do too much on our screens, that is, even if it's a different kind of thing on our screens each time, our interaction is still with the exact same kind of platform, which means the wiring in the brain gets very robust in a certain, you know, in some regions and prunes off other regions. And those regions are the ones related to focus to kind of attuned communication, to the ability to stop and start behaviors. These are really important regions, so we're seeing changes there. So when, when we say that people who use a lot of tech are distracted and look like they you know, are suffering with ADHD, it isn't that they're just trying to be difficult or not focused. It's literally that their brains are no longer wired in the same robust manner for focus. And then the last two areas are relationships. The way our relationships are formed are now based on kind of intimacy at the push of a button rather than on built, sustained kind of trust building um, foundations that tend to be a little more hardy and robust uh, for the difficult times in life. And then finally, we really are seeing a profound change in the way that people develop a sense of self and the way that they're kind of connected to their own kind of personal agency and their own sense of values. And now it's a lot easier to rely on external forces of reinforcement with our devices than it is to kind of do the hard work of creating what I call and other therapists call an internal locus of control, where we know we have the grit and resilience and the ability to kind of come back into ourselves and find our power. Those are really profound. They are. These are deep sense of self, um, dealing with relationships, the messiness uh, of life. Can you talk a little bit about that first one? I'm curious. It makes us, 
it, it makes it harder for us to deal with the messiness of embodied communication. Exactly. So in both embodied communication and embodied experiences. So for instance, we, we, without even thinking about it, we develop an ability to be out and about in the world. And we really develop an ability to like deal with interpersonal conflict or discomfort, even when we're just at the grocery store buying groceries, just by having to have interactions with the people around us. And by having to maybe, you know, look into the eyes of the person who we're offering our card or our money to. And as we offload more and more of our experiences to digital spaces, having more and more things just delivered to our doors, we're robbing ourselves of the opportunity for those kind of bumping up against people and learning the small ways of communicating that eventually can also help with the larger ways. The other thing about embodiment is that we used to have to, life just forced us to deal with boredom now and then. And now we really, because of the power of the technology that we hold in our pockets, we no longer have to be bored. We can avoid it at all costs. And boredom forces us to use this thing that is our body in creative ways. It it forces us to kind of either get up and get moving to stimulate ourselves or or if we don't we you know have some consequences that then may motivate us um but but in, if we aren't practicing these things deliberately we then end up with this very contained life where we don't also know how or feel like we have the kind of capacity to take the small risks of getting out into the world again in our bodies. So we we doubly hurt ourselves. We don't have the experiences, which then robs us of the potential for creating the experiences. Do you think that some of this also affects things like um, social anxiety, which is at very high levels, particularly among young people, I believe. It is. And we have our first research now um, that shows not only a correlation between specifically um, high levels of social media use, which in the research, high use was 30 minutes a day, which is actually quite low. <laughs> but we now not only have really, or have this uh, research that shows a correlation between that use and anxiety and an agitated fear of missing out, but also a causal effect that that, that amount of use of social media can cause anxiety and can cause this kind of agitation. So I have to believe that not only does our social media media use tie in with a sense of social anxiety, but also things like um, video gaming or viewing a lot of overstimulating visual auditory kind of um, digital content, specifically violence in particular, leads us to be also very highly dysregulated in our bodies. We have a lot of hormones. We have a lot of neurotransmitters that are being released that also kind of feel like mimic or create anxiety. And so we have kind of this this massive soup of a world now that actually does really deeply and profoundly affect our mental health. And yet we also have a mental health system and a health system that doesn't actually code or recognize internet use, gaming, um, social media use as addictive. And, and I think we are in some ways complicit to some of the problems until we name that. The World Health Organization has named that as a as an addictive diagnostic diagnostic you know uh, category, so that we can have some protocols for how we can help people. And it strikes me also that in addition to this, you know, what you're describing as um, a lot of stimulation, a lot of hormones, we're also stationary for most of the time. Absolutely, we don't have the same way of kind of coming back to regulated states. You know, we, we used to listen to our bodily message indicators and if we were overstimulated, 
we would maybe find a way to calm down. But now we get overstimulated and the level, and especially if we're in a digital space, the level of dopamine is really, that's released is so high. And that's the neurotransmitter that makes us want to see what's going to happen next and see if we can attain kind of um, an altered state in that space. And so we actually stay in the space that's overstimulating us rather than listening to these indicators that tell us to do something different. Do you see widespread digital addiction? And do you think that's a thing? I, I do think it's a thing. I think, um, like I said, we don't have, we don't recognize it as a diagnostic category in the United States. But I certainly think that the evidence is there and the research is there that shows that the same kinds of physiological and behavioral responses to technology that exist with addictions around food, around gambling, um, exist. Um, I also think that it's important to think about um, whether we think that there is addiction or not, um, that it that we do need to take a, a good, long, hard look at our own dependency. And oftentimes people will say, um, you know, well, it's a problem for someone over there. <laughs> and rarely will they see that the ways in their own life that they become dependent, even if it isn't to a level of addiction, even that dependence may be impacting them in some negative ways, may have some beautiful, positive things as well. But it would be important for us to kind of own the whole um the whole kind of gamut of, of um, dependent properties that certainly are elicited. At some point in your book, uh, students ask a question, but I think this is a question that a lot of people are, are asking, which is, on one hand, we know that there are some problems with um, overuse of, of media, and we would like to have some limits or boundaries. But in education, in work, we are often required to be hooked into all of these technologies as part of our job or as what we need to do our jobs. So how in the world can we set limits when we are required to be um, responsive to a variety of media. Yes, you are hitting a nail on the head. Um, The first thing I want to say in response to this is that I am just so troubled by the fact that that my generation has handed, you know, younger generations, this beautiful technology, this beautiful, shiny, sparkly tool. And then we've done nothing but talk smack about them for using it. And we've modeled horribly how to use it well. And so I think... Say more about that. How have we... How have we... Uh, been poor role models. Yeah, well, we, you know, we are telling our our kids or the children in our lives, you know, that they're entitled and that they are distracted and they have to have their devices. But all the while, we are driving with our devices, directing us everywhere, you know, candy crushing at the red lights and (laughs) texting and emailing and not really owning our own kind of use as well. And so I think that has created a reality where it is hard to even want to seek out help around how do we moderate this when we are so required to be dialed in because there's so much shame involved in kind of the fact in, in owning the fact that we are pretty dependent often that shame dynamic. So first I think we have to deal with, we just are where we are and we don't, there doesn't need to be shame around it. And that it, that we also have to face the reality that, this is something we have to use. So for instance, just trying to do, I'm not a big fan of, of what a lot of people call digital detoxes because those create kind of like 
what a, you know, a very restrictive diet creates, which is this kind of, you know, obsession with the thing you can't have. <laughs> and, and instead, I like to think about, okay, if we do have to be online for school and for work and responsive at, you know, every minute with to our texts, because we really have either been required to be by our employer or our educator, or we have trained our world that we will be by our own need to be uh, that tapped in that what we can do is create small changes in our lives. First of all, we can make sure that we're tending to our embodied lives. So we have fiery opportunities where we're doing things that are a little bit edgy and risky, maybe that, that bring us to life and that like bring us, what? To, um, you know, silly things like I carry sidewalk chalk with me everywhere I go and I make little welcome mats outside of people's car doors or, uh, people watching or taking a dance class or, learning to knit or get, joining a choir or, you know, just whatever thing that's going to like actually be a muse that, that makes it such that a little bit of time every week you're spending away from your device and you're actually and you're consciously doing that. Exactly. And you're enjoying and building up your ability to kind of be just in your skin. And then the other thing I think that the research is really clear about, and this is research in the world of, it, it grew out of the world of yoga, but showing that 10 minutes a day of mindfulness meditation, when that is sustained for four to six months, has the power of doubling the gray matter in the regions of the brain that are responsible for focus and attuned communication. Um, and, and so if we can even just add in a couple of times a day where we are either meditating or that could look like praying or the big thing I am now working on in my work now is boredom. If we're just willing to be bored, I feel like I could, if I could invite everyone to two 10 minute boredom parties every day, <laughs> you know, we would grow our capacity to kind of be curious again and to, to, to tap into our imagination more than tapping into our apps or our devices. And those small changes, I think, can begin to have a profound effect because they, they kind of create also a longing for coming back to them. And I think that's, you know, we, we have lots of things that reinforce us coming back to our phones. You're absolutely right. They are created now to be very, very dependent forming or addictive. Um, there is a whole movement in the marketing world called the hidden curriculum. And that hidden curriculum is just to keep us in app as much as humanly possible. And that's why we see now all of our apps offering us the opportunity to send video and photos and exchange money and, you know, to keep us there because that's data for them. We are not these platforms clients. We are the product that they sell to their clients <laughs> who are marketers. I was going to ask you about that. Who is this serving to have so much of the population yeah. on on this digital technology all the time I, who, I, who benefits i think it it serves the capitalist you know agenda <laughs> it's money and power you know the more that they know who we are and how we spend our time you know that there was a huge expose in the new york times uh, last month about the gps location that is you know saved by us having our phones on when we drive all the time and just how a person's map tells so much about them to marketers and that can be then very effective in terms of selling product and selling even services 
The other thing is power right now. Um, I think, you know, people, the more data they have about us, the more power they can exert over lots of things, our ideas, our ideology, our, the way we will um, be tempted to spend our time or not. And I, I really, I mean, I think there is a, a there, I think there are three levels of responsibility with this. There is a personal responsibility where we do have that kind of small feeling that, oof, maybe we share a little bit too freely and we should read the things we're agreeing to when we download an app. Many apps, when you download them, you give them passive consent to follow your GPS location and to access your microphone. And you don't even know you're doing this. I don't know why I'm doing this. So, you know, so there's that personal level of accountability. Then I think there's kind of the accountability of kind of who I think of as tribal or, or communal elders, you know, the, the people in the community who, who should have this knowledge and help people be inspired physicians, um, faith leaders, um, teachers, you know, and help who model exactly who model and who give people opportunities for trying to learn or be entertained or experience things in different ways. And then I do think that that there is a level of legislative responsibility, then that's where I'm kind of beginning to push my work um, in terms of just accountability around things like privacy, around the way that our technology is manufactured, and the way that it is um, monitored, and also the level of transparency that is given to us about how much about us is tracked. We're in a world where we are being shaped and we're dependent on digital technology, but we don't know how to control it or how to establish, for example, social norms. Mm -hmm. um, and, and who is in charge of doing that? It's kind of like all of this, you know, has kind of, it's almost like the machine has is running us mm -hmm. and people are kind of scrambling to say, well, how do we get control of this thing? Right. Um, and how does any one person, for example, help to establish the, the social norm as to what we should do? Do you have any thoughts about that? I think it's a, I think it's going to be a growing question and a lot of um, tech companies and um, think tanks are, you know, really em employing the work of and the thoughts of ethicists. And I think that's going to be really important. I have to bring it down in my work to this very small space where I say, I am the only one that I can, you know, really control for sure. And I just want to invite as many people into the awareness as possible. And then also invite people into all kinds of awkward moments with me. Because I think part of what you're saying is, you know, we don't know the social norms anymore and we don't know the how to be with each other. And so I just literally try to be as open of a presence as I can be inviting awkwardness because if we can do that, then we can look up again <laughs> rather than being in social spaces and being, you know, looking down. So I think, it, again, there are levels at which we have to approach this and um, it can feel really overwhelming. So one place to start is just with yourself and putting your phone down and looking up and around at people and starting conversations even if they go nowhere, um, but making sure that there are some of us out and about in the world who are still championing um, embodied encounter without shaming technology. I think that's the biggest thing. Um, we cannot shame it. It is a necessary uh, part of our lives now. And to shame kind of, um, it's just, it's a form of judgment that puts you in a hierarchical position of one up. And I think that's a, an unfortunate thing. But as much as we can look up and around, I think is the answer that I can give. You talk about the value of 
boredom, the value of discomfort, the value of having awkward social interactions, which I can imagine to perhaps a young person, they say, what value is there in that? So true. So if you were talking to somebody and saying, look, here's some reasons why you might want to put down your phone, they would say, well, what kind of reasons are those? Yeah. I would probably in that situation talk about um, the great gift that we can have in finding um, deeper access to who we are and who the people around us are. Usually, um, that's not going to be something that I can do by just talking, but if I can invite, you know, so what I'll do oftentimes on um, university campuses is I will say, hey, I'm going to be at the coffee shop at one, and I would love to talk to as many gamers as possible. So if all of you gamers can come on down, you know, I, that'd be great. And what ends up happening is we realize we have a two-hour conversation where no one has looked at a screen, and we've all shared and, and gotten, you know, some new information, and then we've kind of been able to reflect on that moment and say, Hey, we just did this thing. How did this feel to you? And usually people say it felt amazing. It felt so cool. And, and I think that's what I hope to do is to be able to more than, um, speak at why these things are important would be to catch the moment and, and have a create embodied kind of, these are those awkwardy you know, experiences. There are, there's a whole school of psychological intervention right now, which I'm so grateful it exists, but I'm so sad that it has to exist, which is just taking people into social settings and doing things like having them, you know, quote unquote, accidentally uh, spill an entire little coin purse of coins and have to pick them up in the presence of a coffee shop, you know, where people are there working and then use that to pay for their coffee because we now can do that online, you know, order our coffee ahead, pick it up at a separate counter, never have to interact with anybody. And it just, I, I wish that we could just offer those opportunities naturally at the same time as using our tech, but not completely losing all of those small teaching moments. It's interesting that we have more isolation and more depression, and there is a correlation between use of technology and really what we're seeing as epidemic levels of depression and isolation. Mm-hmm. Do you think that digital technology is... Sorry, let me say that again. Mm-hmm. Do you think that digital technology is replacing social relationships for, for most people? The way that I think about this issue is that um, is kind of like this. I use a story because I think that the relationships that we do create in digital spaces are very, very real for, you know, in most cases. Um, but I, after, you know, looking at the research and talking with many thousands of people now over the last 15 years. The story that really resonates most with me is that if I were at the beginning of a running race and my stomach was empty and I hadn't had time to eat that morning and um, I was just, you know, thinking, what can I do? What can I do? It feels so empty. I could grab my water bottle and just drink the whole thing and it would feel, my stomach would feel full. It would stop growling. I would feel like, okay, I'm ready. I got this. But by, you know, half a mile, (laughs) I would realize I have no calories for this run. I have no nutrients. I just faked my stomach into feeling full. And that's what I hear from people who, um, 
are really finding that they feel lonely and yet they have huge connections in online spaces. It feels a little bit like water and it feels good in the moment, but when the really gritty or difficult or challenging things happen in a person's embodied life, they don't always have the people in the spaces that they need them to be, or they don't have the depth where they feel like they can be as vulnerable as they maybe need to be. And so that's, that's the analogy I use. And I think it's interesting, you know, most of our large social media platforms are talking about some of the research that suggests that they are correlated with depression and isolation. And I had a phone call with someone from one of them not long ago who was asking me, what could we do to help with this problem that, you know, heightened use of social media is correlated with isolation and loneliness. And, and my response is, all the things you could do are things you're never going to do, <laughs> like time people out after 30 minutes and you can't come back in for another. But again, it's all tied to money and power and influence. And I just think we have created a reality that, that now it's, it's going to be very hard for us to come back from possible, but difficult. Can I ask you how you came about writing this book? Yeah, I two things happened kind of as like a convergence. My husband, first of all, was working in high tech and was talking about the development of the smartphone at that point, right at the same time as my own children were in middle school and flip phones were entering the picture. And so as a psychologist who very much believes in interpersonal neurobiology, so saying that it is, is it is within the context of meaningful relationship that we learn best and that the brain wires best. I was watching these little flip phones totally interrupt kind of all of the relational moments of uh, these middle school age children. At the same time, I became an auntie and wanted to gift my nephew with some of the same creative, really wildly creative toys that my brother and I had loved and that my children had loved. And I found that even in just that 13 years since my own children were uh, brought into the world, most preschool toys had become chipped. So instead of sitting on the floor, you know, parents sitting on the floor and making cow sounds with their their little toddler, now you put the cow in a, in a little spot on the machine and it makes the cow sound for you. Or um, the Hot Wheels toys, instead of running them around on the ground, now you put them on top of an iPad and the, the track moves under them. And so I started looking at this and thinking, how can this be a good idea? <laughs> and, and knowing that we in America are not good at moderation, whatever's shiny and exciting, we want more, 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 more. So I began, um, I asked my family if they might be willing to take somewhat of a moderate approach to tech and if they'd have kind of joined me in having a lot of wild fiery things around our house so we still even though my kids are grown and gone have bins of legos and bowls of kinetic sand and etch-a-sketches around on all the coffee tables balance boards and places for people to stand on um, and and then I started writing to some of these toy companies and never could get a response so I decided I'm going to just dedicate some time to research and started then dedicating about 15 hours a week of, of diving into both pop culture trends, tech trends, and the clinical research. In those days, 15 years ago, there wasn't much. Now I can barely keep up. But that's how the book came to be. I, I really preferred to do experiential speaking opportunities. So I did that for years and years. But then I couldn't get myself to as many places as were interested in the topic. So I decided to write the book. So when you talk to people at um, around the country and you, you do a lot do. of speaking. What advice do you give people about how to manage digital technology? I say two things. First of all, amp up your embodied environment and your comfort with being uncomfortable, inconvenienced, 
bored and awkward. <laughs> so that, you know, so we just really get more in your skin, find those things that are fiery. And then the other thing is really to employ of 10 minutes a day. And if you can do 10 minutes twice a day where you practice either a mindfulness meditation hopefully without your phone, or um, you literally sit and stare into space. And if you can link that with something that you do every day. So for instance, I've had a lot of gamers tell me that it's really effective for them. The first time they pick up their game controller of the day, they realize, okay, if I have enough time to pick this up, and I'm probably going to play for a couple of hours, I can do my 10 minutes. So they set it down and do their 10 minutes or, or linking it with brushing your teeth or whatever it is. But if we could create that habit, that has the huge potential of impacting both our the literal wiring of our brain and also just our um, maybe the habit that we might love being with ourselves. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was a real honor and really fun. Thank you. I have been talking today with Doreen Dojan McGee, who has recently published Device, Balancing Life and Technology in Today's Digital World. I am Suzanne Legrand, and this is Disobedient Femmes.